0: Welcome to the Cosmosphere Podcast, Episode Four Triumph and Tragedy. I'm your host, John Molnix, and I'm a volunteer at the Cosmosphere. You can catch me here on this podcast, as well as on my daily podcast, The Space Shot. The Cosmosphere podcast is still new enough that your reviews will help make a big difference in how many people can find the show. We would love it if you could leave a review in iTunes or on Google Play Music. You can help spread the word about the incredible work that's done at the museum simply by leaving a review for the podcast. On the first Wednesday of each month, we dive into a new topic. This month, we're taking a trip to the Cosmosphere's SpaceWorks facility. We'll also hear from Carla Stanfield about what's happening at the Cosmosphere this January. Then we're going to finish up this episode with my conversation with Brad Neust, the Director of Education at the Cosmosphere. We talked about some sad chapters in American spaceflight history and how NASA overcame those tragedies. One more thing before we get started today, if you'd like to find out more about the work that the Cosmosphere does, head to cosmo.org and check out the information on the world-class education and outreach programs that are available. At the end of last year, my dad and I were lucky enough to have a tour of SpaceWorks, and what follows is the audio from that visit. Without any further delay, let's head to SpaceWorks.
1: So this is this is SpaceWorks. Um, we've we've got two two um, facilities. This is our our six thousand square foot high bay facility where the F one engines um, were restored. Okay. And then the um, other building I'll take in uh, is is the main shop. Okay. Um, so what the guys are presently doing is they are getting this area prepped um, for the uh, restoration of the original mission control consoles. Um uh, NASA Johnson mm. Space Center. So very cool. We'll bring all the consoles. This is Jack Graber. Well, hi, hey there. Nice to meet you guys.
2: Hi, Jack. How mom. you doing? John. Nice Hi,
1: John. Nice to meet you. John uh, does a, a podcast that uh, he's been nice oh, enough to cool. volunteer uh, his time to showcase and highlight us. So um, part of what Great. he's doing is, is uh, a segment on space work. But Jack, um, Jack is our... Director of Technology, but as of January 1st we will uh, oversee our Space Works Division. Very and cool. So, Jack and Don, who's hiding, are getting the area prepped, so when, when uh, the contract um, gets signed, which we're hoping will be in the next couple of weeks, these guys will go down, and I don't know if you've been to Johnson Space yep, Center? Once. Okay. So, the Historic Mission Control, they'll, they'll go row by row and take a row at a time and bring those consoles here. And then we'll, this is Don Ike. Hi. Hi, Don. Hi. For up moments. Yeah. Yeah. We'll take the consoles row at a time, bring them up here and in, in about three months per row. Uh, they'll restore them. So literally go in and clean them, um, remove any corrosion that's there.
0: When we first walked into the Spaceworks facility, we were greeted by a jet engine from an SR-71 Blackbird that was covered by a large tarp. It took us a few minutes to walk around and just kind of get our bearings in the massive warehouse, and it was a really cool experience just soaking it all in for the first time. You just heard Jim Remar talking about some of the restoration process for the consoles that are located at the historic Mission Control Center in Houston. The Cosmosphere is going to be restoring the consoles of the Moker or the Mission Operations Control Room. Let's jump back in and hear Jim talk a little bit more about that process.
1: Jack and, and the guys then will also reanimate them. So part of what NASA wants to do is, is when a visitor walks into the viewing room. the the mocha comes to life and so these consoles light up yeah um, we've we've spent an enormous amount of time researching and talking to the flight controllers to understand how each console works and what it did and what buttons lit up and what data would be on the screens Mm -hmm. and so then the guys will recreate that and there will be a be a visitor experience to where the visitor comes in and they'll see it and then mocha will you know it'll be up you know, as they come in and they'll see it, what's going on, and then um, they'll hear the audio of the of the lunar landing, and then the TV camera, will, you know, the, the stuff will come up on the screen. So, it's, wow. you know, it's it's uh, been neglected for how many years? You time, know, when, yeah. when they left after the um, shuttle early shuttle program and went to the to the new um, operation, they haven't done anything to it. Yeah. So, um, a an architectural firm out of Houston has been hired to the interior back to what it was during the Apollo 11 mission so from the wallpaper the carpet to everything the what's on the consoles and, That's and cool. you name it, it it'll be back there and uh, it's, uh, it, it'll be a awesome awesome uh, preservation when it's all done uh, but along the walls uh, just artifacts you know, from our collection Um, We've got about 10,000 artifacts in the collection, of which about... So it's
2: like most museums. Most of what you have is actually you can't display. Exactly.
1: We only have about 8% uh, of the um, collection on display. Um, All the large stuff are are obviously kept here. This is like the the J58 engine from the... uh,
0: As you can probably tell, both my dad and I were like kids in a candy shop. Here
1: (laughs) you Here's one of the computers from the... the, uh, control so you see all these consoles these are all original mission control consoles as well so most people recognize the the moker the original mission control but there was moker 2 which was essentially the same thing but it was it was the guys who were literally reading the data and so they were communicating to the front room guys you know the the they were back, never on TV. Exactly. The backroom guys were just as important as the front room guys. Yeah, it's not more so. guys, exactly. The front room guys got all the glory. Yeah. That's awesome. And so these are the consoles from the backroom. And so they're identical to the, the front room consoles. So were those
0: used just to kind of develop how you're going to restore the front room
1: consoles? Great question. Um, we we acquired these, I don't know, back in the 90s at some point. NASA accessed all of the all of these out of their property didn't want them anymore instead of preserving them so Cosmosphere acquired all of them they've been literally sitting in this warehouse for the last probably 20 years Um, just recently we um, worked on two movie projects one I can't talk to you about but the other is first man okay so Jack reanimated 16 consoles yeah that will be mission control for first man which is the production on um, Neil Armstrong's um, life the, the movie that uh, oh uh, Ryan Gosling is Neil Armstrong yeah uh, that'll be fun so yeah. Yeah. what was great about it was it really allowed the guys to get an understanding of, of how sure. the consoles worked and so it was it was a trial run for us That's um, great. and we and got to get paid to do it and our consoles will now star in a movie.
0: One of the highlights of the Spaceworks tour for me was being able to see the turbopump component from one of the F1 engines that was recovered as part of the F1 engine restoration project. This is
1: um, one of the recovered pieces from the F1 expedition. This is a uh, turbopump.
2: Can I touch it? Yeah. So, what's the metal of this? It's uh, mostly
1: uh, ink, that... and
2: ale, ink and ale. Um, so it's a composite with ceramic and stuff too, right? No, it's so?
1: it's, uh, it's a it's cast.
2: Oh, it's um, actually cast.
1: And what what you're saying is just the the corrosion. That's just the corrosion. Yeah. I was I was telling John that depending on where they found it, um, there there were two, three things really that that would attack it: electrolytic activity. Uh, but in this case, uh, it would be calcium and salt.
2: Hmm. That's just bizarre to me because you think of. To, you know, tooling with aircraft and stuff. Right. You know, pieces being cut out of a hard blo- a solid block. Yeah. I just can't think of very many space... Companies.
0: During the tour of Spaceworks, Jim also detailed some of the ideas that they have for the redesign of the Cosmosphere.
1: We're in the process of um, a capital campaign to raise funds uh, to redo the museum. So as, mm-hmm. as, as you go through, I mean, it's tired. It's, yeah. it's, it needs some TLC. Yeah. Uh, so what we want to do is... is basically gut the museum and then open it up because there's there's a lot of winding activity and in, in, in some cases it's because all the graphics and information is backlit yeah um so we want to open it up and then really open the artifacts up to where you, the public can really get around because yeah museum. i just see telling him that's yeah. what i thought in some yeah. cases
2: it'd be nice to go all right. the way
1: around that piece, yeah. mm-hmm. and that's part of our yeah. plan and then you know put some interactivity in there um Create some immersive environments and then take the the text where if you want to spend 15 minutes if you want to spend an hour if you want to spend all day you know yeah. there's something for everybody yeah um, so we're we're really excited about that because we really feel it will allow our museum to to be even more appreciated than what it
0: presently is. After looking at the artifacts, engineering mock-ups, and all of the goodies that they have in their high bay facility, it was time to move to the next part of the Spaceworks facility. But before we got there, we took a short walk outside.
1: I'll take you into the... Yeah, yeah.
2: Nice Thank to meet you, you gentlemen. Too. Sure, nice to meet you guys. You I'll bet. See you again. The- oh, yeah. Uh, nice you. Take care. Nice you. So...
1: That is an Agena.
2: Yeah, that's what John said. Yep. Look at the Agena yep. as we draw them. I I it doesn't I don't necessarily remember. Because that, was what, the one that's... that like, yeah.
0: what was it, Jimmy? Yep. Oh I forget. I forget what mission, but yeah. Like was eight.
2: this this was an unmanned yeah. type of
1: unmanned, yeah. Okay. That yeah. is um, a hydrogen tank from the service module. So the, the big hydrogen tank at the center of the service module, the command service yeah, module. So yeah, that's what this is. Mm. And then those tanks over there, those are um, fuel and, and oxygen tanks, so that would have been on the descent section of the LEM.
0: The malfunctioning Agena that I had in mind was part of the Gemini 9 mission. I was a little bit preoccupied with all of the other space artifacts that were there, so I couldn't pull that fact off the top of my head. With the short walk outside done, we made our way into the other workshop at the Spaceworks facility.
2: Standard shop. Yeah. So your are people who have that do the restoration. I mean, obviously they have to know how to weld. They have they to know how to fabricate I'm, in certain so they things, gotta, and they they've got
1: be able to, to um, machine, uh, bend metal, work with metal, weld, uh, work with wood, make molds, um, paint. Yeah. That's pretty much you know what, that that's what we 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 don't if we were to hire a new technician. <laughs> we wouldn't. We wouldn't necessarily go and look for somebody who knew about an artifact per se.
2: We would want a, a hands-on uh, on, skills type. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And
1: and all these guys come with a varying degree of, of skill set and background. Um, so Dale, who's driving the truck, is a master mechanic, but he's also a, a finished carpenter and has taught himself how to how to weld and paint. And, yeah. um, you know, Don, the guy he met out there, he. He is uh, you know, laid tile and did window glazing and things like that. I mean, so you just, you, you can't teach somebody how to how to do a skill per se, but you can teach them about an artifact. Yeah. Once they learn about the artifact, and understand how it was made and, and what went into it, then they can apply the skill that they know to whether it's the restoration, the replication. I gotta, I gotta show you guys this piece.
2: Oh, these are interesting. So this, this,
1: is, this is a Bendix mobility test article, and this was one of the um, companies that Marshall Space Flight Center invited to develop a prototype of the lunar roving vehicle. And at the time, Marshall was under the control of Werner von Braun, and here he is driving the Bendix.
2: Wow. So that's Werner von Braun yep, driving it? Yep. Right sitting there.
1: right there driving this wow. vehicle. So, NASA invited a number of of companies uh, to develop a prototype wow, of what the lunar cool. rover um, would could look like. And so, um, this particular company is a company called Bendix Corporation, uh, and this was the prototype that they came up with as as to what a LRV uh, might might look wow, like. Wow! Yeah,
2: that's fantastic. So There's this, wheels. yeah, isn't it crazy? Yeah, that's just yeah.
1: Yeah, because those are the wheels. And yeah. So they're spring liquid. Yep. Oh so my this gosh. Is, it's owned yeah. by the Smithsonian, but it was sitting in Huntsville, Alabama, yeah. uh, at the U.S. Uh, Space and Rocket Center. And so we brought it up here. Um, so
2: you just charged with restoring it then? We,
1: yeah, but unf- unfortunately, um, a museum hasn't stepped up that wants to display it.
0: I'm linking to the picture of Dr. Von Braun driving that mobility test article in the show notes. The wheels do kind of look like a wagon wheel, and it is an interesting rover design. After checking out the Bendex Corporation mobility test article, we wrapped up our tour, and it was time to say goodbye.
1: So that's that space works.
0: What a neat awesome thing to get me.
2: behind the scenes. Thank, Thank you absolutely. so much. My pleasure. Was fantastic. My Appreciate pleasure. It.
0: Over the coming months, we're going to have some more SpaceWorks content, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of those episodes. Now it's time to chat with Carla Stanfield about what's up at the Cosmosphere. Carla, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you so much, Sean.
0: So January is going to be a busy month, it sounds like.
3: (laughs) Yeah, we have a couple of different things going on, that's for sure. I think our whole 2018 so far is looking busy, but exciting. That is good. (laughs) So our first, um, kind of exciting new thing is that we're going to be bringing back in the hidden figures movie, sort of as preparation for Martin Luther King jr. Day. We'll be showing that this, uh, or, excuse me, the first weekend in January the 5th and 6th, and then the 2nd as well, the 12th and 13th. Um, that'll be at our retro movie price for $5. You can see all of our show times on our website.
0: And that will be linked to in the show notes, so check it out.
3: <laughs> Perfect. And then we will have our second annual community celebration on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So following probably one of our more widely um attended events here in the community at, at the Baptist Church across the street, we will open our doors for community reception. So at that event, we'll have some vocal performances, some dance performances, um, some little snacks, some entertainment. But the big thing that we're really excited about is we'll have a brand new Rotunda exhibit opening in January. And that exhibit is going to focus on the contributions and accomplishments of several African-American astronauts.
0: Very cool. Because it used to be there was some like Apollo 17 stuff. And then there was a, um, a couple artifacts from that mission. And then there was mm-hmm. also like the Blackbird ejection seat. So it's like the whole rotunda then has been updated.
3: It'll be the South side of the rotunda. The, the Blackbird exhibit stays, okay. but the South side of that museum rotunda, we, we change out about every six months or so, a shifting exhibit. So that'll be up for about six months. So you have from January through, let's say June to come and see that.
0: And I'll definitely be out there before it's gone. So I'm excited about that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful.
0: What else is going on um, in January?
3: Then we have our normal slated uh, monthly events, our Coffee at the Cosmo and our Space Out Saturday. Coffee at the Cosmo is the third Thursday every month. We offer a presentation in coffee and snacks here for free for the public. Uh, in January, the topic will be the International Space Station, and the speaker will be Daniel Bateman. He is actually the Public Programs Manager at Exploration Place over in Wichita. Very cool. Um, so we're excited to have Daniel here and hear from him. And then the third Saturday of each month, we offer our free Space Out Saturday. So it's geared towards families. This is, again, a public event. Lots of these activities are free. Um, we have activities for children in our Innovator Workshop area. We have a special story time for kiddos. And then we have a children's um, Space Trek is what it's called, okay. it's a special tour just for kiddos through our uh, museum. Anyhow, Saturday Space Out Saturday in January, the theme will be snowflakes because we're getting into the, hopefully, <laughs> the time of year where we'll be seeing snow, and we're going to learn why snowflakes are all different, how they're formed, and then we're going to invite children to make their own.
0: That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I would trade you for the snow that we currently have as I'm looking out my window right now. I'll trade you uh, no snow for the snow I've got. So,
3: Deal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then there's one other thing that's coming up in January that I am personally very, very excited about. And that is some of the consoles from the Moker that are going to be arriving in uh, Hutch. So tell us, tell us a little bit more about that.
3: Yeah, we're we're still waiting on some of the exact details but about the middle of the month we expect the consoles from Johnson Space Center to arrive here in Hutchinson for the beginning of that restoration project. So, yes, we are very excited about that. The end goal of the project is to completely recreate those consoles, not recreate them, excuse me, maybe refurbishes the better word there. Yeah. So they will look like the 1960s-era, Apollo-era modules, but they will function. The capabilities of the computers will be modern.
0: A little bit easier to show off what they did when you've got a modern (laughs) computer behind it and not something old, and you don't have to worry about spare parts and all that stuff. So,
3: Yeah, I think they'll have slightly faster computing uh, (laughs) capabilities than what was there
0: just a little bit faster
3: (laughs) maybe slightly more memory as well (laughs) so yeah we are we're excited about getting that project underway and you should be seeing more in the news on that as we get a little bit closer
0: well carla thank you for joining us um, again here this month i really appreciate it and i look forward to next time
3: wonderful thanks john
0: Be sure to check out the event calendar in the show notes for more detailed information about the upcoming events at the Cosmosphere. We're finishing today's episode with my conversation with Brad Neust, the Director of Education at the Cosmosphere. The theme that I was thinking of for this month is Triumph and Tragedy, and I think the following conversation covers the low points as well as the high points of some of the most difficult times in American spaceflight. Today I'm talking with Brad Noost about the Apollo 1, Challenger, and Columbia disasters. Thanks for joining me.
4: Thank you. It's nice to be
0: here. Glad to have you back. We're starting to to have uh, returning guests here now, which is pretty cool. (laughs) Absolutely. So we're going to start off today with Apollo 1. Um, It's now basically been 51 years since the Apollo 1 disaster uh, killed astronauts Roger Chaffee, Virgil Gus Grissom and Ed White in a fire on the launch pad. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that mission. The accelerated timetable for Apollo, how did that play into this disaster?
4: Well, in 1961, John F. Kennedy declared that we were going to go to the moon and that we were going to do so before the decade was out. And this was only three weeks after the first Mercury flight with Alan Shepard, and he was the first American to go into space. And so that program had to happen very quickly, and uh, a lot of technology had to be invented just just to be able to, to make the uh, trip to the moon. And so we were trying to beat the Russians to the moon. We were in the height of the Cold War, and uh, the accelerated time scale, definitely played into that because there was tremendous pressure on uh, the contractors to get the the spacecraft done on time so that we could, so that we could make Kennedy's deadline. And so unfortunately, because of that, shortcuts were taken, mistakes were made, and uh, that did lead to the tragedy. That was a a major factor in the the tragedy of Apollo 1.
0: And it sounds like from what I remember reading about the disaster is, during the testing they had had a lot of velcro just to make things easier to hang up in the spacecraft and when you've got things that are flammable like that doesn't really doesn't really help the situation out so was that part Do you think that played into absolutely
4: there were a lot of there were flammable materials on board the spacecraft and uh in fact uh they were supposed to have been removed and then they were and then they were put back in later so uh, there were engineers that realized that this was a problem and then it was addressed and then later on some a lot of this flammable stuff was was put back into the spacecraft the uh, the environment was pressurized with 100 percent oxygen so anything that can burn in that environment will burn yeah. in a big way
0: yeah. So, After the fire, there was a lot of things that were done to redesign the command module. There's a lot of new safety procedures that were initiated. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that because, I mean, it's not something that we didn't just, you know, say, oh, the fire happened and then we moved on. We learned from it. We found out what caused it. We found out how to mitigate those type of instances in the future. So let's talk a little bit about that.
4: Okay. Well, one one of the major redesigns was the hatch. And the hatch on, uh, on Apollo 1, on that command module, opened to the inside and it was basically a, a plug-type hatch which sealed because of the greater pressure inside the spacecraft than the uh, outside air. And so uh, because of that, it was very, very difficult to get open. And when the fire happened, the pressure, which was already greater than the outside air, increased even more. it made it nearly impossible for the astronauts to get the hatch open and so and then uh, the the, uh, technicians on the outside struggled to get it open as well because of the heat and so that was a major redesign and then on the um, later version of the command module the ones that actually went to the moon they had a hatch that opened to the outside and uh, it actually had um, an emergency mechanism that allowed it to open very quickly. Also, uh, the environment, which in Apollo 1 was pressurized with 100% oxygen, the uh, ratio of that was changed so that it was more of a oxygen-nitrogen mixture, and so it was still more oxygen. It was about 60-40. So, um, but then as they went into space, as they accelerated through the atmosphere, um, the pressure inside the spacecraft decreased, and so they ended up breathing. They still breathed pure oxygen once they were in space, but the pressure wasn't nearly as great as it was at liftoff, and uh, that made the fire hazard a lot less. So, 100% oxygen is um, going to make anything that can burn will can. Anything that can burn is going to burn like crazy, so
0: yeah, I mean it's something that they still have to worry about today, so sure it's you know at least we've learned what we can, you know how to mitigate where we can, mm-hmm. so that you know that's definitely something that good that came from that, even all these years later, it's still a very sobering experience to mm-hmm. read about this mission or to visit um, the launch pad where the fire happened, it's still. Just, you know, an unsettling
4: experience.
0: Absolutely. All right, so Brad, we started off talking about Apollo 1, um, and now we're going to talk a little bit about um, two more recent missions, uh, the Challenger um, explosion as well as Columbia. Let's start off with Challenger. It was a little bit of a chilly morning there in Florida, just like it was here um, in Hutchinson this morning. It was. You know, let's talk a little bit about how that played in with the O-ring, the infamous O-ring.
4: Okay. Well, the uh, O-rings that separated the different sections of the solid rocket boosters uh, were not rated. They weren't tested below about 54 degrees. So that morning uh, was really cold, and uh, prior to that, engineers had been concerned about the O-rings and whether they were going to be able to withstand that. So if you think about what happens with rubber, when it gets cold, it gets brittle, it gets hard, it can crack. And so um, there, was, there was actually ice on the launch pad that morning and they had to uh, spend time out there de-icing. And uh, you think about Florida down at uh, Kennedy Space Center, that's not a place that normally gets that cold. So that was a really very chilly morning for that. And the shuttle had not launched that kind of cold before. And so, yeah, there was, there was real concern.
0: So, yeah, it's a little bit different climate down there. The Russians launch in cold weather all the time, but the right. shuttle wasn't really ever meant to handle that type of extreme cold. Right. This flight was really notable and there was I mean millions of people watching it mm-hmm. um, because of Krista McAuliffe. Mm-hmm. She was the first teacher flying into space. And you had school kids around the country. You had families. You had her parents, even in the crowd there watching, right. watching the liftoff. So that's you know the Challenger launch was was really it was it was really difficult for a lot of people because nobody was expecting that to happen just what was like seventy something seconds into the flight. Right. right. Teachers in space, the education value. You know, it would have been great to have her up there doing that education from space, all that stuff. So it was just really just tragedy that that ever happened. Yeah,
4: absolutely. Yes, uh, and the O-rings, uh, they had, I mean, there had been some ruptures and some issues before, and it was one of those things that the engineers kind of determined was uh, an acceptable risk. And so they, they knew there were problems with it. There were people that were very outspoken that said we, we shouldn't have even... We shouldn't even be flying. We should not fly this day uh, because of the cold and because of yeah. danger to the O-rings. And so there were definitely warnings.
0: Yeah. Well, and in the aftermath, you had the Rogers Commission, which was a presidential commission that was going over the causes of the failure. Um, what, do you, what do you think we learned from the aftermath of the Challenger disaster?
4: Well, probably the biggest lesson is to just not become complacent and Gene Kranz basically said, you know, "We have to strive toward perfection. I mean, we just can't—we can't do any less than that, and to just not get shoddy with the work, and uh, not just assume that um, something that might be a problem um, is going to be okay, and uh, to not overlook these things that could cause potential catastrophes." Uh, you I, th- know. I think it's, I think, you know, probably what happened is we'd, we'd had successful launches. And I think that it's, um, it, it's easy to get complacent when you, when you have uh continued success and it's like, okay, this is, things are going great. We're, yeah. we're doing well here. And uh,
0: the go fever.
4: Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And that, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Gene Krantz because the, the whole tough, but competent that plays into you know, the risks and rewards of spaceflight in general. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a calculated risk. You're sitting on millions of pounds of oxidizer and fuel. So there's always a little bit of risk involved, no matter what the launch is.
4: There is, and the astronauts know that and they accept that risk. They know that there is a very real possibility that they might not come home and they do accept that risk and they would, they would want us to continue. So that, that is the prevailing attitude. I find among the astronauts is they want us to press on. Even if, even if they lose their lives, they wouldn't want us to stop because of that.
0: We've, we've talked about Challenger now. Let's, let's uh, fast forward a couple decades to the Columbia disaster. Um, unlike Challenger, Columbia successfully launched. But during that launch, something happened that had happened on previous shuttle flights, but not to the severe extent That it did this time for Columbia. Uh, There's a piece of foam insulation that struck the leading edge of the wing. Let's talk a little bit about what happened with that mission.
4: The external tank of the Space Shuttle, which provides the fuel for the three main Space Shuttle engines, uh, the tank is filled with liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen and those are cryogenic liquids. They're very, very cold. And so, to prevent ice from forming on the, um, the external tank, it is uh, encased in a foam. So, if you think about how light and airy foam would be, uh, it doesn't seem like something that could um, cause a problem. But, on the way up, it wasn't uncommon for pieces of foam to fall off. And again, this like, uh, like the O-rings before in Challenger, this became uh, an acceptable risk. In the flights, because it's foam, it didn't seem like it would be a real big problem. But a piece of foam did strike the leading edge of the wing. You have to remember that as the shuttle is going up, it's going thousands of miles an hour. Uh, it reaches seventeen thousand five hundred when it's in orbit. So uh, that incredible speed, when you when you add that velocity to even something like a piece of foam, then it can do real damage. And so it did make a hole. Uh, probably 6 to 10 inches in diameter in the leading edge of the wing. And so the entire time the astronauts were out in space and orbit uh, during their um, docking with the International Space Station, uh, their vehicle was crippled and that they had no way of knowing that. And so they were really doomed from that, from that time of launch. You know, when that foam hit, were, their mission was doomed and they really had no awareness of that. And so then as the vehicle came back into the atmosphere, all of that speed, that 17,500 mile per hour speed, um, all that speed has to go away so that when you come down and you land on the runway, you have a nice landing at about 200 miles per hour. And that happens in about 30 minutes. And so what happens is all that energy uh, that you attain during your orbit turns into heat as you come back into the atmosphere. uh, The air gets superheated And it gets compressed in front of the vehicle and turns into a superheated plasma, which can reach up to, uh, the the wingtips could reach up to 3,000 degrees. And so that superheated plasma went into that hole in the wing and melted the internal structure of the wing and uh, caused the vehicle to break apart. And so the pieces ended up landing over Texas, most of them over East Texas. And the astronauts, of course, perished in that mission yeah. as well. So, Well,
0: in, in the aftermath of that, I remember we were driving. It was on, I think we were on like a Christmas, or not Christmas vacation, but we were on like a, just a weekend trip out of school in the car with my mom and sisters. And I remember hearing the breaking news come over the radio for that. So mm-hmm. for me, that was the first time I had ever experienced something like that live. So right. it was really You weren't expecting it with the regularity of the shuttle flights, with just the number of missions they had. It was something that just came out of nowhere for that. But at the same time, with the tile damage that previous missions had had, it wasn't really out of nowhere for, you know, the people at NASA, they, they knew that the tile damage was a problem. They just didn't know the the full extent until tragedy struck with Columbia. You know, one of the things they did to fix it uh, was when the shuttle would fly up to the space station, it performed that maneuver where Mm -hmm. it would just kind of flip around. Can you talk a a little bit about that? Yeah.
4: Yeah. Kind of when it flew up, basically it did kind of a belly flop. And um, so it turned so that the, um, those on board the International Space Station could see its underbelly and then they could uh, photograph it with high resolution cameras and to see if there was any damage. And so... That was a way of, uh, of just checking it out, making sure that the thermal protection system was all still intact and um, making it so that it would be safe to re enter.
0: I mean, that's good. You know, it's whenever there's a setback, it's NASA gets, I think, a bad reputation from the public. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. there's just all these terrible things that are happening. But sure. clearly, they. Saw that there's a problem, and then they always would work to address it.
4: So. Right, and they and they, after Challenger and Columbia, there was a grounding for about two years, mm-hmm. before they returned to flight, and they um, thoroughly investigated and determined what the causes were, and came up with solutions. And um, again, it's it um, is a big wake up call, and that we can really never get complacent. With uh, spaceflight, uh, it's very dangerous. So the launch and the landing are really the most dangerous aspects of it because launch um, you know, you're sitting on, like you said, you're sitting on um, millions of pounds of high explosives and you're, you're experiencing tremendous aerodynamic pressures as you go up through the atmosphere. and then as you come back into the atmosphere, you're experiencing the incredible heat of reentry. And so yeah, it's very, very dangerous
0: well worth it it is worth it definitely worth it and that's one of the things that I always have loved about the Cosmosphere even though I didn't get to do any, anything as a kid is just the education and just making sure kids are inspired Right. and that they see that there's just incredible things for us to do in space being able to come here and learn about what astronauts have done learn the history learn the science I think it's awesome
4: Absolutely. And that's uh, one of the things I love about working here is being able to work with kids and see that light go off in their eyes and get excited about science and a, a possible career in uh, engineering or science or uh, maybe even being an astronaut. And So it's, it's great to be a part of that. And I see um, I've been here long enough to see um, people that came here as campers. They're now working out in the, in the field. So it's, it's pretty cool. One thing I will say, too, about our future rocketry is we are we're going away from the space shuttle. We're going to go back to a capsule design mm-hmm. like we had in Apollo, and that's actually a lot safer because the capsule is up on top of the rocket, and uh, in the event of an emergency, the whole capsule can be uh, basically separated from the rocket and parachute down, whereas the space shuttle, really never had an escape um, way of escaping
0: pretty interesting to think about Um, you know and that's one of the things that whether it's the Boeing Starliner whether it's you know SpaceX with the dragon um, switching to that capsule design does give a little bit of extra margin right, for safety if we can still accomplish most of the things with those platforms you know I sure. think it's a little bit little bit better to go with that type of design. So. And
4: with the advancements in technology, um I think, you know, when we compare that to Apollo, we're going to have much greater sensors and, oh, yeah. and uh, computer technology to let people know there is a problem and the need for an abort.
0: That way we're not just relying on somebody
4: pulling <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man. Well, Brad, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And we're we'll, looking forward to having you on next show.
4: Sure. Thank you for allowing me to be here. Enjoying.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. Make sure you share and subscribe to the podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. It helps even more people find out about the podcast. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Mulnix.